Welcome to the Darklands Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Pacific Northwest true crime. This is a true crime podcast. You are the expert in you. If at any time you feel distressed or that this episode is not for you, please feel empowered to skip ahead or listen to a different episode. On a drizzly overcast day in Portland, Oregon, 1999, a couple was walking their dog and they came upon a body in the dense undergrowth of a remote part of Forest Park. It would be the first of three bodies discarded by what was soon to be known as the Forest Park Killer. This is a case that moved really quickly. The Forest Park Killer targeted a vulnerable community, street-level sex workers that were also experiencing homelessness, substance abuse, and mental health issues. Law enforcement response was immediate and robust, and a seemingly improbable connection made by a detective would be instrumental in in identifying and capturing the killer. In the meantime, the city would take some commendable steps to protect its most vulnerable, and two months after the discovery of the first body, the case would be solved. This is Season 1, Episode 1 of Darklands. I'm your host, Miss Abby B., and this is the story of the Forest Park Killer. Forest Park is one of the largest urban forest reserves in the United States. It runs about eight miles along the west hills of the city. Long before the Pacific Northwest was colonized, the indigenous peoples that lived here called the hills to Portland's west side, the Tualatin Mountains. Forest Park is like this moody wonderland of second and old growth forests with dug fir and hemlock. Its 5,000 acres of dense forest overlook downtown and the Willamette River. The Willamette River divides the city's east and west sides. The area is not like other forested regions that you might be thinking of, where there's a space between trees that's covered with a thick carpet of pine needles and you can walk off trail to explore the things you see in the distance. Forest Park is a rainforest. It's not an area where it's easy to go off trail. There's well-grown ferns, moss, slick logs, debris, and thorny blackberry vines. There isn't a lot of visibility between the trees. But if you stay on the pass, there are over 80 miles of hiking, biking, and recreational trails, and that makes Forest Park a super popular destination. It's really easy to access from downtown Portland, and you literally can take a few steps off of Northwest 23rd, which is a trendy shopping area in the Nod Hill District, and disappear into this amazing, lush wonderland. For a lot of the year, Forest Park is dreary and damp and shrouded in low-hanging fog. But other times it seems like this magical painting where there's sun rays slicing through the thick greenery. The moody nature of Forest Park has led to it being prominently featured in dark scenes in episodes of the TV show Grimm and other movies. And finally, just to illustrate kind of how remote parts of the park can seem, even though it is an urban reserve, in 2004, a man and his daughter were discovered living in Forest Park. It was estimated that they'd been living off the grid for about four years before they were discovered. You can see a fictional version of this story in the 2018 film Leave No Trace. The point of all of this is that Forest Park is a beautiful, convenient, and easy place to get lost, to hide, or to hide the evidence of a crime. May 7, 1999, was a cloudy and drizzly day in Portland, which is pretty typical in a city where the rainy season runs from October to May. On this day, a couple walking their dog on a remote trail in Forest Park made a grisly discovery when they stumbled on the decomposing body of 28-year-old Lila Faye Moeller. She was found face down, nude, and partially covered by blackberry brambles. 
An autopsy would reveal that she had died by strangulation. It was also revealed that her body had been there in the elements for nearly two months before she was found. A used condom was found less than 30 feet from her remains. On May 8th, as police were investigating the location where Lila was discovered, they came upon another body, just 80 feet from the original crime scene. 26-year-old Stephanie Lynn Russell was also found nude and had been strangled. Forensics would reveal her death had occurred within a week of being discovered by investigators. Further examination of the crime scenes indicated that neither women had been murdered at the scene. Rather, the thick canopy of Forest Park served as a convenient place to dispose of their lifeless bodies. As the investigation into these two murders deepened, it was discovered that Lila and Stephanie had some things in common. Both had similar physical characteristics, including facial features, height, and weight. Both had received support services from community agencies that provided assistance to individuals experiencing homelessness. Both had been involved in the criminal justice system for issues relating to drug possession. Both were known to frequent Upper West Burnside, which, in the 1990s, was an area known for drug deals, street-level sex work, and a moderate population of people experiencing homelessness or living transient lifestyles. There are some reports that the women were acquaintances, and that would totally not be surprising. Portland is a small city. It feels really neighborhoody. And if they were both spending time on Upper West Burn, it wouldn't be shocking if they were at least aware of one another. Later, it would be stated that both had also struggled with mental health issues and had been diagnosed as manic-depressive. Manic-depressive is the old-school term for what we now refer to as bipolar disorder. Less than a month from the discovery of the bodies of Lila Moeller and Stephanie Russell, another set of hikers would experience a grim turn of events when they stumbled upon the body of 17-year-old Alexandria Nicole Eisen, about a quarter of a mile from where Lila and Stephanie were found. Alexandria was known by Alex to her family and the name Tamaro on the streets that she frequented. Alex bore a striking resemblance to Lila and Stephanie and also had a history of drug-related issues. She was known to engage in sex work, though it's unclear if this was something she pursued on her own or if it was forced because one of her acquaintances said that she had a pimp that wouldn't allow Alex to get sober or maybe some combination of both. She also frequented a downtown clinic that provided services to youth experiencing homelessness. So now we have three bodies, all from a vulnerable population and all found within a quarter mile of each other. They shared similar physical characteristics and had similar lived experiences. When Lila and Stephanie were discovered, having been murdered a little over a month apart, the police were anxious and they were kicking around the idea of a serial killer. When Alex was discovered, the knowledge that there was a serial killer operating in the area became more solidified and law enforcement efforts ramped way up. The police were not messing around. I feel like it's too often that we hear about cases that involve street-level sex workers, especially those that are experiencing substance use and homelessness, where law enforcement is just really slow to investigate, they don't take it seriously, they don't throw their full investigative weight behind solving the crimes against this community. This was not the case at all when it came to the individual who would become known as the Forest Park Killer. I don't know if it's because the Pacific Northwest has spawned its share of infamous serial killers like Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway, Keith Hunter Jefferson, who's known as the Smiley Face Killer. Whatever the reason, the police investigation was intense from the beginning. They deployed over 100 investigators to scour the area of Forest Park between Maple Trail and Salzman Road, where the bodies were discovered. They reached out to the community of sex workers and people experiencing houselessness in the West Burnside area. They went to local bars showing pictures of the women, trying to gather as much information as they could. 
It should be said that despite these efforts, some of the residents of the Saltzman Road area expressed not feeling like they were getting enough coordination from the police. Residents of that area reported that it wasn't uncommon for women to be taken out to that area for nefarious reasons. And over the years, they had reported at least five instances of women emerging from that area of Forest Park seeking help after being assaulted by men. Sometimes these were women who met a man at a bar and agreed to leave with them, only to end up in the isolated area subject to attempted sexual assault. But in one instance, a partially clothed woman ran up to a resident's door. She had been choked and reported having run through the woods for hours before making it to safety. Residents felt like they wanted more information and coordination from investigators. But investigators were playing this one close to the vest. Portland Police Chief Charles Moost asked for understanding from the public, saying that, quote, the information we have is the only advantage we have in solving these very terrible crimes. End quote. Multnomah County and City of Portland law enforcement enacted a Forest Park Killer Task Force. They were also consulting the Green River Killer Task Force from Seattle. That case was not yet solved, as well as another serial killer task force in Spokane, Washington. They were borrowing resources from all over the place. Detective Sergeant Cheryl Kanzler, a Portland Police Bureau spokeswoman, said, We're borrowing people from everywhere. Are our resources stretched? Yes. But will we make it work? Yes, all of our resources are dedicated up here. Meanwhile, the city of Portland was also stepping things up. I had moved here from the Oregon coast to Portland for a brief stint in 1999 before I permanently settled here in 2008. During that time, I struck up a friendship with Bill, a Street Roots vendor. Street Roots is a local newspaper that reports on and contains reporting by communities and individuals experiencing homelessness. Vendors buy the paper for pennies on the dollar and then sell it for a dollar. The price just went up to $2 in the last year, but for a really long time it was only a dollar. Street Roots is both a well-recognized and highly respected news source in Portland and is not uncommon to get to know vendors from particular areas. For me, in 1999, it was Bill who sold Street Roots outside of my local coffee shop. I got to know him through small chats when I was buying my issue of the paper And after a while, I started to bring him coffee, and we'd chat for about an hour every week or so while he was selling the paper. For all of May and June, our conversations would touch on what was happening with young women on the west side and the bodies found in Forest Park. Bill was more dialed into what was happening among advocates for those experiencing homelessness than I was. And I remember him telling me that a lot of the shelters were closing to men so that the safety of women could be prioritized. I remember these conversations so clearly, but memory is tricky business, so I wanted to find confirmation that this was true. After a lot of digging, I was able to locate one source in a January 2000 report on violence against the homeless that was prepared by the National Coalition for the Homeless and the National Homeless Civil Rights Organizing Project that mentions that the city added over $120,000 to its budget to deal with homelessness issues and that 30 more beds for women experiencing homelessness were added. The report also cites numerous community advocacy groups banding together to request more support for women in the homeless community. As for shelters converting to only accepting women, I just couldn't find anything specific in all the records I searched. One thing I do remember for sure about this time was feeling a sense of pride at how urgently the city was responding to to this crisis. It was front and center every day in the news and in social service sectors where I worked, and it felt like for this brief minute, the minute when it really mattered that the city and law enforcement and social services were all united in a common goal, which was to protect a highly vulnerable population. (laughs) 
So now we're in June 1999. Police are investigating and have no suspects, at least none that they're discussing with the public. The investigation was going at full throttle. And this is when two things happened that would lead to an arrest and conviction of the Forest Park killer. One was really intentional, and the other seems, to me at least, like a crazy connection made by a detective on the Forest Park Killer Task Force. First, one of the things that the task force had to go on was a similarity in the appearance between Lila, Stephanie, and Alex. They all had dark shoulder-length hair and were smaller in stature. So police utilized one of their own. A female officer served as a decoy, posing as a sex worker on West Burnside. She looked very much like Lila, Stephanie, and Alex, and the strategy proved to be effective because it caught the attention of a suspect, and he began stalking the decoy. As this was happening, an investigator assigned to the Forest Park Killer Task Force, Detective Sergeant Dave Schlegel, made a surprising connection with a case that he had once been a part of. Now, I think this is surprising because on the surface, the cases don't seem to be super closely related, and the case that he was thinking of had happened seven years earlier. In 1992, Shelley Harding was 24 years old and seven months pregnant. She had just gotten off of work and wanted to get home. It was either after the buses had stopped running or they were no longer doing their frequent service routes. Whatever the case, the buses weren't available. So she began walking on tired, pregnancy-swollen feet. A car pulled over into a nearby parking lot and the driver offered her a ride home. First, she's like, no way. There's no way I'm gonna accept a ride from a stranger but the driver seemed kind of like a nerd and he had two children's car seats in the back of his car and that and the fact that he was really friendly just put her more at ease. Plus, she was exhausted and sore from standing and walking all day. So she decided to take up the ride that was offered. They hadn't even made it five blocks when Shelley realized that she had made a devastating mistake. Before they had gone very far, the driver locked the car doors and brandished a knife. Even worse, he became really agitated and nervous. This frantic behavior led him to rear-end another car. The fender bender forced him to stop for a moment, and two men got out of the car that he hit. And Shelley's like, all right, this is my ticket out of this situation. And she gets ready to call for help. But then the driver who kidnapped her guns it and speeds away from her potential rescuers. Shelley is understandably freaked out and believes this is it. I'm going to die. But she is also super fierce and super smart. So she begins to purposefully touch everything she can in the car so she can leave her fingerprints in as many places as possible. The driver takes her to a secluded spot and Shelley again uses her wits. This woman is seriously the epitome of keeping her shit together in the middle of a crisis. She begins talking to the driver, asking him about his life, telling him about her life, pretending that she likes him. Unfortunately, this does not save her from being repeatedly sexually assaulted and strangled by a belt the driver was wielding. But her efforts do pay off in a weird way. After the brutal sexual assault, the driver begins, oddly, to start crying. And Shelley is able to convince him that she won't tell anyone if he just lets her go where he found her. And miraculously, he does. Detective Sergeant Schlegel was the investigator for Shelley's rape and abduction. So what was key to him catching the suspect was the hit and run that occurred during the kidnapping. The two men in the vehicle that he had hit wrote down his license plate and reported it. Schlegel was able to contact the traffic officer in that case and discovered that the car was registered to one Todd Allen Reed. Reed was arrested and convicted of attempted rape. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison and was mandated to register as a sex offender upon his release, and it was at this time that some of his DNA was taken. Reed served three years, 
of his 12-year prison sentence. That's right, three. Don't even get me started on the fact that he served a quarter of his sentence for the vicious assault and kidnapping of a heavily pregnant woman because I literally have no words. Actually, that's not true. I have a lot of words, but most of them are not fit to put in a podcast. It's beyond infuriating that three women would not have been callously murdered at his hand if he had served his whole term or even, I don't know, three quarters of his term. Regardless, maybe it was the strangulation part of Shelley's case or that her assailant took her to a remote area, but for whatever reason, Schlegel put these things together and had a suspicion that Reed might be connected to the Forest Park murders. In fact, Schlegel reached out to Shelley seven years after her case had been solved and asked her to help him with his investigation. He didn't share his suspicions about Reed with her, but he did ask if she could support the task force's investigation in another way. See, in the time after her assault, Shelley understandably experienced the effects of PTSD. And she had many of the symptoms that trauma survivors often have, such as guilt and shame. She self-medicated and she experienced homelessness. She even lived in a shelter for a while where she was roommates with Lila Moeller, the first victim discovered in Forest Park. Schlegel asked Shelley if she would be willing to reach out to the community she had met during this time, the community on Upper West Burnside, to let them know that he was trustworthy and didn't care about warrants or other issues that may scare witnesses away from cooperating with the police. He simply wanted to find the killer. And, like the badass that she is, Shelley obliged. So things are starting to gel. Schlegel had made this connection, and the task force was using a vice officer that looked like the victims as a decoy, and the decoy was being stalked. The stalker was driving a dark green Mitsubishi Eclipse. He had approached the decoy, inquiring about sex, and talked to her, and then he parked in a nearby video store parking lot and just was super creepily watching her. So this, when he was creepily watching her, is when he is approached by another detective, and his car is searched and he's questioned. In his car, police find an open but unused condom, a yellow strap, and a book about a female serial killer. They didn't find anything that allowed them to arrest him on the spot, so they let him go. But they put him under 24-hour surveillance. So this is 1999, and the mechanisms of DNA testing were not speedy. So remember, they found a condom less than 20 feet away from the body of Lila Moeller. They had taken DNA from that condom, and they had sent it off to get testing. This testing was in the works all the while that Detective Sergeant Schlegel is making connections, and the police decoy is being stalked. And it's in the middle of the surveillance period that the DNA comes back as a match for one Todd Allen Reed, the perpetrator Schlegel had suspected. And... On July 18, 1999, two months after Lila's body was found after being discarded like so much garbage in Forest Park, 32-year-old Todd Allen Reed was arrested for the murders of Lila, Stephanie, and Alex. Sometimes you hear about serial killers that were odd and act a little creepy, but most of the time you hear about the serial killer next door, that dude that's just always like a normal guy his neighbors and co-workers had no suspicions about. Just the normal guy they interacted with day to day who never raised any red flags. Todd Allen Reed was that guy. His employer at the produce market where he unloaded trucks at night said he was a good worker and reliable. Another employer would refer to him as, quote, a perfect gentleman, end quote. His neighbors saw him as a divorced father who worked two jobs to support his kids and who often played ball with them in his front yard where he also barbecued with them and his girlfriend. 
Most people agree that he was a bit nerdy with thick-lensed glasses and stringy hair. He could be standoffish, but maybe he was just socially awkward. In fact, at one of the jobs, he got the nickname Lenny, like Lenny from the show Laverne and Shirley, because he was just really disorganized. He was also known for writing poetry and reading at open mics in Portland cafes. He simply wasn't the guy that neighbors and colleagues would ever guess was a brutal murderer. But police had a different picture of Reed. He had been a petty criminal racking up his first burglary arrest at the age of 14. For a lot of years, that was the extent of his criminal record, burglaries to steal food and wine, kind of survival-type crimes in a period where he himself was a bit transient, crashing on friends' couches or pitching a tent in the open field. Reed was actually born Todd Allen Thomas in Portland, Oregon in 1967. His mom and Marine Staff Sergeant father had been married nine days when he was born. The marriage didn't last long, with the couple divorcing when he was just four years old, and Todd never really forming or having a relationship with his biological father. His mom would take him and his younger brother to Arizona after that divorce, and within 11 months she would meet and marry Robert Reed, who adopted Todd and his younger brother. The family would settle in southeast Portland. Robert Reed remembers Todd as being standoffish and introverted, but chalked that up to the fact that he was a boy without a father in the picture. He also remembered the boy's mother as being strict, but also present, always having a clean house and meals on the table. Robert reports that he bit off more than he could chew in adopting the two boys, and his marriage with Todd's mother ended when Todd was 12. Robert says the boy's mother was really the only constant in their lives. As I said earlier, Reed had his first run-in with the law when he was 14 for burglary. At that time, he was sent to a reform school for troubled teens. What I haven't been able to find is any of the trifecta common with serial killers in their youth. No reports of bedwetting, none of animal cruelty, none of fire setting. Reed went on to get his GED and would take some college classes in horticulture and accounting in 1987 when he was 19. That's where he would meet Gail Bennett and the two would begin living together. They were not well off at all, and they lived by couch surfing and sleeping in a tent in fields in the area of Gresham, Oregon, a Portland suburb. It was throughout this time that Reed would rack up more arrests for burglary. When the two did get married in 1988, they opted to do it in front of a judge. Now, this was the same judge that had presided over some of Reed's burglary cases. And Gail Bennett said that they did this on purpose because they wanted to prove to the judge that, that they could make something of themselves. Reed and his wife did finally settle into a house, and they had two kids. If anyone noticed something was off with Reed, it was his wife. She would report later that he was a man who wore a lot of masks, depending on who he was interacting with. But underneath the masks, he was also a man that had no emotions. She said that nothing fazed him at all, and he could shut any sort of feeling off like he controlled his emotions with a light switch. Reed was working two jobs to keep his family afloat, one of which was a night gig at the produce market where he unloaded trucks. And Gail reported that Reed had little interest in things that happened during the day when he wasn't working. About the only thing he spent energy on was writing dreary poetry about loss and longing and reading it at open mics. Well, that and porn. He had a porn collection that he hid from his wife or tried to, as well as phone bills that he racked up calling sex lines, which he also tried to conceal. This was before the internet, so hiding your porn was a little more challenging if that's what you felt like you had to do. So it was easy for her to kind of find. Police report that it was also in this period that Reed would solicit sex workers in the area of West Burnside after getting off from work on his night shift. The Reed marriage was crumbling under the weight of financial and other stressors. In 1991, the family filed for bankruptcy, 
And it's not long after this that the assault on Shelley Harding takes place and that Reed goes to prison. What's super interesting is that Gail claims to have believed that her husband went to prison for a hit and run, which she claims is what he told her happened. I find this kind of baffling and was not able to locate any more in-depth research around the issue like, were they still living together when this happened? Did she not read the news? Was she never interviewed by the police? I just, I don't, I don't know. It's really surprising that Gail would not have a clue about both the crime Reed was convicted of and why he spent three years in prison. You see, there are other murders that law enforcement suspect Reed of being responsible for. Murders that happened while Gail and Reed were couch surfing and tent living in Gresham at the beginning of their relationship. Murders that the police believe Gail may have information about. But according to police, Gail was uncooperative helping them with info about these cases. Gail, for her part, was adamant that she did not have any information on those crimes, which is kind of interesting, since according to police reports, Gail Bennett was the last person to see each of the victims alive. There is not a lot of information out there about these two cases, at least not much that I could locate. On July 3, 1987, 15-year-old Jennifer Chur was reported missing in Gresham. A month later, on August 3, 12-year-old Mindy Thomas also disappeared. The girls were missing for a year when, in July of 1988, Jennifer's body was found on a remote part of the forest that surrounded Gresham. Mindy's body would be found that October, just three miles from where Jennifer was located, also in a heavily forested area. Both girls were strangled and left in the isolated woods. Police would not confirm whether or not they had been sexually assaulted. However, they were able to collect some DNA from the crime scene and victims. In addition, both girls were familiar with Gail Bennett, who was the last person to see them before they vanished. Jennifer and Mindy's murders were never solved, but police did have a suspect in mind. In fact, they questioned Todd Allen Reed several times and considered him the quote-unquote main focus, but they never had what they needed to arrest or convict him for these crimes, and he went on living with and then marrying Bennett, who had claimed not to have any information about the girls she allegedly was the last person to see before they were murdered, and who would later claim to have believed that Reed went to prison for a hit and run and a parole violation. Gail Bennett divorced Reed in 1997, two years after he got out of prison for the assault on Shelley Harding, and two years before he would go on to murder Lila, Stephanie, and Alex. Reed would never face justice for his alleged role in the murders of Jennifer Shear and Mindy Thomas. Depending on which reports you read, there was either not enough DNA material to make a conclusive match between him and the victims, or there was some kind of link which satisfied investigators enough for them to consider the case closed with Reed as the only perpetrator. In 1999, police rolled up on Reed and arrested him at his night job for the murders of Lila, Stephanie, and Alex. Reed actually pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And this is where he's still rotting today. As the Forest Park Killer Task Force wrapped up, they did run through unsolved crimes to see if there was any that they could link to Reed. There have also been suggestions that Reed may have had something to do with the disappearance of Amatha Baines, an 18-year-old woman that went missing at the same time Reed was active and who was also friends with the victim, Alexandria Eisen. This link has never been brought to fruition in the justice system, and to the best of my research abilities, Amatha remains a missing person to this day.
I want to start winding down this episode by closing with a picture of Lila, Stephanie, and Alex. There are a lot of different ways to put together a podcast and a lot of choices about where to put the focus and when to highlight certain information. And for me, I didn't want to leave this episode ending with a focus on read or some idea of closure because justice and closure just aren't the same thing. Instead, I want what remains with you after this episode to be a fuller picture of three women who had hard lives. They weren't perfect, but they loved and they were loved. They had strong ties to their families that they kept in touch with regularly. And I think that it isn't uncommon to hear for someone that's experiencing homelessness, especially when it's coupled with mental health and substance abuse issues, that we imagine that they're all alone in the world and that they have no family or that their family's given up on them. And this just simply isn't true for these women. They were connected with their families. And in addition to their given family, they had also built communities and networks of people that that valued and cared about them, both on the streets and in the shelters and the agencies where they received services. Lila Faye Muller was one of 10 siblings. She spent her early years in Eugene, Oregon, where the family raised rabbits, chickens, and pigs. They even had a couple of horses and a milk cow. She was bright, she learned how to read and write before she went to school, and she was full of life. She played sports and did cheerleading. Her family said that she could have actually cheerleaded for her own basketball games, that that would have been like her dream. Her family moved from Eugene to Clarkia, Idaho, when Lila was a junior in high school, and at some point during this period, she began self-harming. She would eventually become diagnosed as bipolar, which at the time they called manic depression, and was prescribed lithium. A lot of times, meds like lithium and other drugs for serious mental health issues can have a host of side effects that people can find more unpleasant or debilitating than the actual symptoms of the disease that they're experiencing, so they stop taking them. With lithium specifically, these can include tardive dyskinesia, which is like uncontrollable trembling that can be small or shake your whole body. Lithium also can cause weight gain and acne. So you can imagine that when you're in like middle school or early teenager having weight gain and acne and a mental health issue, that this is like totally devastating. I'm not advocating for people to stop taking their meds or anything, especially when it's not in their best interest. But this is what Lila did. She stopped taking lithium and began self-medicating with alcohol. Unfortunately, alcohol addiction was something that her mother also dealt with. Lila's family returned to Oregon when she was 15, and by that time, she was fully engaged in abusing drugs and doing stints on the streets. When she was 16, she gave birth to a son with a man, Jose, that she met on a Greyhound bus. Lila and Jose stayed together, and Lila made multiple attempts to get clean. Her son spent his first birthday in a halfway house. By the time her son was two, Lila was serious about trying to get sober. Her family reports that she went to multiple treatment centers, even spending time near Tillamook, Oregon, closer to the coast, where she lived in a Christian treatment center. It was here that she discovered a love of writing hymns. Like many people struggling to get sober, Lila had multiple periods of getting clean and then using again. She even made it two years once without using. But addiction is like the swirling eddy. You swim out from the center and think that you've broken free, only for it to pull you back under. Lila would get pulled under over and over again and would experience homelessness and multiple arrests for possession and prostitutions. Eventually, Lila's younger sister, Lisa, would take custody of her son. Though Lila no longer had custody, she maintained her connection with him and would spend like considerable time getting him meaningful and thoughtful birthday gifts. About three years before her untimely death, Lila allowed her sister to adopt her then seven-year-old son. By the time she was murdered, she was pretty deep in her substance use. 
Her sister Lisa reported behavior that is really common for people struggling with addiction. The more Lila used, the more ashamed she became. The more ashamed she was, the less contact she would have with her family. It's a painful pattern that I'm acutely familiar with and one that is soul crushing for everybody that's involved. Lisa said Lila had no self-esteem. She was a really pretty girl, but she didn't know that. The hymns that Lila wrote paint a picture of someone who was trying and who wanted something more for herself. In one she wrote, Love lights the way from me to you. May I learn to love me as you do. Mercy and love shall see us through. Stephanie Lynn Russell's history is a little harder to piece together. At the time of the murders, reporters found her family understandably reluctant to talk about the issues in her past that may have contributed to the challenges that she had with substance abuse and homelessness. She was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the family moved to Tigard, Oregon when she was young. Tigard is a suburb of Portland. At some point, her parents divorced, and this is something that affected her deeply. Eventually, she would begin to frequent an area of Portland known as Old Town. It's an area with a large population of people experiencing homelessness and itinerant lifestyles. This is also an area where a lot of social service agencies targeting this population are located. By all accounts, she was able to create a chosen family among the people frequenting this area. She also continued to have contact with her father and stepmother. In Old Town, she was known as being wickedly funny, especially able to crack jokes and make people laugh when times were especially hard. And she was generous with both her humor and her drugs, which earned her friends. She was also quiet and could have a quick temper. She had children that she left with their father in Utah, and her temper was often triggered when she began to talk about not having her kids with her. Like Lila Moeller, Stephanie made multiple attempts to get sober. Her stepmom reported that she had spoken with Stephanie in the weeks before she was murdered. Stephanie had just completed a detox program. She was clean and she was excited. She had plans to be reunited with her kids over the summer and also had plans to get married. Her stepmom said that she believed Stephanie was really proud of herself and excited about her plans. This was their last contact with her. Stephanie told her dad and stepmom that she was heading to an apartment that she had in a Portland suburb and they never heard from her again. Alexandria Eisen was the youngest of the women found in Forest Park. She was born in Portland and had a rough go of things almost from the time she was born. Her dad was in prison and her mother struggled with substance abuse issues. Alex went into foster care when she was two years old. A couple years later, she was returned to her mom's care. Her parents divorced when she was five. Alex never even made it through middle school. She was 12 when she started skipping school and heading downtown where she made friends with the youth that were homeless and who frequented the downtown area. Her mom said that she really tried to intervene to keep Alex from going downtown, but by that time Alex was exhibiting some symptoms of the bipolar disorder which she would eventually be diagnosed with. Things like periods of super hyper behavior and poor impulse control. She began smoking pot and tripping on acid during this period. Her mom would eventually seek help from the state to intervene with Alex, giving custody to Child and Family Services who placed Alex in a residential treatment facility. Alex stayed there for nine months where she received both mental health and sexual abuse treatments. The counselors there remember her as super creative. She would paint and write poetry. They also said that she was way too trusting. It was as if she was unaware that anything bad could happen to her. For an example, when she was 11, police in Tacoma, Washington, about 150 miles north of Portland, picked Alex up with a 19-year-old dude. She was high on acid and carrying a sign that said, free pot for rides, which is pretty much the epitome of young and naive. 
Staff at the treatment center also recalled a time when she returned to their care after being gone for a while and being just curled up in a ball going through excruciating withdrawals. She was eventually transferred to the Oregon State Hospital, which is a locked treatment facility, also used in one flu- the basis of one flute over the cuckoo's nest for just kind of an indication of what type of place it was back in the day. She was there for about eight months, and it was there that she was finally diagnosed as manic depressive or bipolar. She eventually went to another residential treatment facility where, on the day she turned 16, she kicked out a window and fled to the place that she felt the most comfortable, downtown Portland. As Alex descended into homeless, li- homeless living, she began engaging in sex work to support her drug habit. She maintained close ties with her mom and actually was even really straight up with her mom about what she was doing and including the sex work and the drugs, which of course was super difficult for her mom to hear, but her mom was just grateful to have contact with her and she never stopped loving her and she never stopped hoping that things would get better. Alex also frequented youth services for the homeless during this time. I had a friend that worked at one of those places and um, he remembered her by her street name tomorrow. He said that she was really funny and she just was really friendly with everybody. He was really incredibly impacted by her death. Alex would tell her friends and family that she wanted to be famous one day, maybe a movie star or a singer. We will never get to experience what her creative gifts could have given us. Lila, Stephanie, and Alex were women who struggled with homelessness, with drugs, and with mental health, but they were also women who loved and who were loved, who were taken too soon by a man who should have still been incarcerated for his vicious attack on Shelley Harding. We'll never get to know if Lila, Stephanie, and Alex would have achieved their hopes and dreams for themselves. They are forever missed by their families and communities. Thank you for listening to Episode 1 of Darklands. All source notes are on the episode webpage at www.darklandspodcast.com. Please leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You can also support this podcast on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash darklands. Thank you.